And our text this morning is going to be a single verse from the chapters that we read this week for Sunday school. So a lot of us should already have the context leading up to this verse fresh in our minds. The verse we'll be working from will be John 8, 58. It says, Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. But we're going to begin our study this morning by looking at how Jesus' words here impacted the people he spoke to in John chapter 8. So we're going to go back and read all the way from 8.30 to 8.59. So please turn to John chapter 8, and I see everyone standing already. So John chapter 8 will begin in verse 30. It says... As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, Everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, If you were Abraham's children, you would be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if, you were God's, if God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? 
and the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And then here's our verse. Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. You may be seated. Now we see that verse 30 says many believed in Jesus as he taught in the temple. This conversation actually started back in the previous chapter. And we can see there that the crowd in the temple was divided about what they believed about Jesus. Some thought he was the Messiah. Some thought he was a prophet. But others thought he was demon-possessed. But as he continued to speak, verse 30 says, many believed in him. And this raises an important question for understanding what happens in the following verses. What was the nature of their belief? In verse 31, we see that it's the Jews who had believed in him who he addresses in the following verses. And by the time we get to the end of the chapter... He's called them children of the devil, and they're picking up stones to stone him. So let's look at two things that explain how these Jews went from what John describes as belief to wanting to murder Jesus so quickly. The first thing is that John sometimes uses the word believed in the aorist tense to describe a temporary, non-lasting belief of something about Jesus, but not true saving faith and not belief that sufficiently comprehended who Jesus actually was. And this is obvious in multiple places in John's gospel. For example, in chapter 12, verses 42 through 43, many are described as having believed in Jesus who were afraid to confess him because it says they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And this sounds exactly like the people Jesus described when he said, Whoever is ashamed of me and of my words, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in his glory. That doesn't sound like true believers. In John 2, 23 through 25, it also says that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But John continues on to say, that Jesus knew what was in them and didn't entrust himself to them. It says, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. And this brings us to the second thing that's important for understanding how the Jews in chapter 8 went from believing to wanting to murder Jesus so quickly. And that's that Jesus knows the unbelief of those who are not his, even when they claim to be his disciples, and he exposes it. In chapter 6, we find events similar to what we find in chapter 8. 
in 615, after Jesus had fed thousands of people with five loaves of bread and two fish, the people were ready to take Jesus by force to make him king. But by the end of the chapter, after Jesus had told them hard truths and made big claims about himself, the crowd, including many of his disciples, had left. There in verse 64 it says, For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe. And Jesus' knowledge of who are and are not his sheep was a point that John made again in chapter 10 where Jesus proclaimed that he knows his sheep even before they believe and told the Jews he addressed in that chapter, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. So we see that the belief these people had was not true saving faith. They believed something about Jesus, but their belief was misdirected based on false messianic expectations and didn't fully comprehend the truth about who Jesus was. We also see that Jesus knew their hearts. He knew from the beginning who those were who didn't believe. And just as he did in chapter 6, here in chapter 8, Jesus exposed the false belief of these false disciples by confronting them with hard truths and big claims about himself that due to the sinful condition of their hearts, they could not accept. And we can see the progression of the hard truths and claims about himself Jesus confronts them with in chapter 8. He knew they prided themselves as children of Abraham and thought that because of their ancestry, they were the beneficiaries of the Messiah's kingdom. They thought that because they were Israelites, they were God's children. But Jesus exposed both of those assumptions as false. If they were truly children of Abraham, they would have acted like Abraham towards the one whom God sent them. Instead, they were offended when he told them that they were slaves to sin that needed to be set free. If they were truly God's children, they would love and honor the one God sent them. Instead, as soon as Jesus revealed who their real father was, the ones who had believed in him joined the ones from the previous chapter who claimed that he was demon-possessed. And Jesus' claims about himself also escalated as the conversation with these people continued. He claimed to be the one who could set them free from sin. He claimed God was his father. He claimed that he had come from God. He even claimed that anyone who kept his words would never see death. But in our verse this morning, verse 58, Jesus made the ultimate claim. He claimed to be God. Now, verse 58 is one of the I am sayings of Jesus that we find in John's gospel. So let's look at what the I am sayings are and what they were intended to communicate. To the ears of those familiar with God's call of Moses from the burning bush, the words I am immediately bring to mind the name God gave Moses to tell the Israelites who had sent him in Exodus 3.14. There it says, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Now John surely had this connection in mind when writing his gospel, but I don't think this was the most direct connection to the Old Testament he wanted his readers to understand. John's original audience, 
just like the book of Revelation that he wrote, which was written to seven majority Gentile churches in Asia Minor, was Gentile Christians. The Old Testament scriptures they used were the Greek Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, and it was what the New Testament authors quoted from most often. In Exodus 3.14, the Septuagint used different words, synonyms for the words John used in the I Am sayings of Jesus in his gospel. Instead of those words, John used the Greek words ego eimi, which were the words used in the Septuagint to translate the I Am sayings of Yahweh in the section of Isaiah sometimes referred to as the trial of the false gods. In that section of Isaiah, chapters 40 through 48, God repeatedly declares the things that he does that only he can do. The things that prove he alone is the only true God. He calls the false gods and their followers, all the nations, to come forward and present their case. But none can make the claims he makes or do the things he does. So let's look at a few passages from that section of Isaiah just to kind of get the flavor of the context in which we find these I am statements of God. Isaiah 45, 20 through 21 says, Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of the nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, Yahweh? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Now, did you catch that? Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? God's pointing to his ability to tell the future as something only he can do. So listen for it again in another passage from this section of Isaiah. Isaiah 41, 21 through 24 says, Set forth your case, says Yahweh. Bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. Let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things, what they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. Tell us what is to come hereafter, that we may know that you are gods. Do good or do harm, that we may be dismayed and terrified. Behold, you are nothing, and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. And then verses 28 and 29 continue the point. They say, but when I look, there is no one. Among these, there is no counselor who, when I ask, gives an answer. Behold, they are a delusion. Their works are nothing. Their metal images are empty wind. Another example is Isaiah 44, 6 through 8. It says, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, Yahweh of hosts. I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Who is like me? Let him proclaim it. Let him declare and set it before me since I appointed an ancient people. Let them declare what is to come and what will happen. Fear not, nor be afraid. Have I not told you from of old and declared it? And you are my witnesses. Is there a God besides me? There is no rock. I know not any. 
And this section of Isaiah also records God pointing to the fact that he alone is the creator of heaven and earth, which is a claim that only he can make and is a claim that distinguishes him alone as the one true God. Isaiah 44, 24 says, Thus says Yahweh, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am Yahweh, who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself. And Isaiah 42, 5 says, Thus says God, Yahweh, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. Okay, so I hope that small sample gives you an idea of the context in which we'll find the I am statements of God in Isaiah 40 through 48. God repeatedly points to the things that make him alone God and exposes the gods of the nations as false gods. Now, before we look at a few of the I am statements we find in those same chapters and then Jesus I am statements in John, I just want to note that in our English translations, many of the I am statements have the word he added after them. But in the Greek of John and the Old Testament as readers were accustomed to, the Septuagint, there is no he after I am in the text. And I am with nothing after it isn't normal. And it's just an awkward, as awkward in Greek as it is in English. And that means that these statements in Isaiah would have stood out in the, to the original readers of John's gospel. And the connection between Jesus' I am statements and these verses in Isaiah would have been evident. So I'm going to read these passages as John's Greek-speaking audience would have read them with I am instead of I am he. So let's start with Isaiah 41.4. It says, Who has performed and done this, calling the generations from the beginning? I, Yahweh, the first, and with the last, I am. Isaiah 43.8-13 says, Bring out the people who are blind, yet have eyes, who are deaf, yet have ears. All the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Who among them can declare this and show us the former things? Let them bring their witnesses to prove them right and let them hear and say it is true. You are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and my servant whom I have chosen, that you may know and believe me and understand that I am. Before me no God was formed, nor shall there be any after me. I, I am Yahweh, and besides me there is no Savior. I declared and saved and proclaimed when there was no strange God among you. And you are my witnesses, declares Yahweh, and I am God. Also, henceforth, I am. There is none who can deliver from my hand. I work, and who can turn it back? Another example is Isaiah 46, 4. But we'll read verses 3 through 11. So you see that same context here. It says, Listen to me, O house of Jacob, all the remnant of the house of Israel, who have been born by me from before your birth, carried from the womb, even to your old age, I am. And to gray hairs I will carry you. I have made and I will bear. 
I will carry and will save. To whom will you liken me and make me equal and compare me that we may be alike? Those who lavish gold from the purse and weigh out silver in the scales hire a goldsmith and he makes it into a god. Then they fall down and worship. They lift it to their shoulders. They carry it. They set it in its place and it stands there. It cannot move from its place. If one cries to it, it does not answer or save him from his trouble. Remember this and stand firm. Recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. Calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my counsel from a far country. I have spoken and I will bring it to pass. I have purposed and I will do it. And Isaiah 48, 12 through 13 says, Listen to me, O Jacob, and Israel whom I called. I am. I am the first and I am the last. My hand laid the foundation of the earth, and my right hand spread out the heavens. When I call to them, they stand forth together. Now, did you notice that those same themes we saw in this section of Isaiah are in the I am passages also? Only the one true God can declare the future. Only the one true God created the heavens and the earth. Yahweh is the one true God. And besides him, there is no other God or Savior. So with that context in mind, let's look at some of the I am statements of Jesus recorded in John's gospel. Now remember, the ability to declare the future is an attribute of Yahweh, distinguishing him as the only true God. In John 13, 19, Jesus says, I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am. In John 18, 3 through 8, John drew special attention to these words, I am. He repeats them three times to make sure the reader catches their significance. It says, So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. Judas, who betrayed them, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked, asked them again, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now the word band in band of soldiers there in the Greek is a cohort of soldiers which would have been hundreds of soldiers. So don't you think there's something more significant in Jesus' words there than simply saying, oh, yeah, that's me. His words, I am, knocked hundreds of armed soldiers to the ground. So it seems like he was declaring who he is and displaying his power over them before he went with them. Now, before we go on to the other I am statements in chapter 8, 
I want to take a few minutes to look at the same teaching in the broader context of John. The deity of Christ is something that appears over and over again in John's gospel. Last week in Sunday school, we went over a brief intro to the gospel of John and talked about how just about everything in this gospel was written to point the readers to who Jesus is. We saw how John began doing this in the very first verse. And there, in John 1.1, he pointed his readers to the deity of Christ. It says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. We talked about how John used the imperfect tense or aspect of the state of being verb there, referring to an already ongoing state of existence in the past. So when John started his gospel off with the same words as the first book of the Old Testament scriptures, in the beginning, he was making a huge claim about the Word, the pre-incarnate Son. In the beginning, the Word was in an already ongoing state of existence. The Word pre-existed the beginning with God, and yet the Word also was God. Now, we won't go into all the details of the Greek construction John used here, but last week in Sunday school, we saw a little bit of how John worded this very first verse extremely precisely to point to the deity of Christ. He made the point that the Word possessed what it means to be God in His very nature and yet remained distinct from the Father. John used a very specific construction in the Greek to do this in a way that avoided the danger of his readers thinking the word was a different or lesser God on the one hand, and the danger of them thinking the word was the Father on the other. Also, remember the verses we saw in Isaiah where Yahweh proclaimed the things that made him the only true God, and being the sole creator of heaven and earth was one of those things. As we saw, Isaiah 44, 24 says, I am Yahweh who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens and spread out the earth by myself. But speaking of the word, John 1, 3 says, all things were made through him and without him was not anything made that was made. John wanted his readers to understand who the word was. He was distinct from the Father, yet was himself God. And he, along with the Father, created the heavens and the earth. This word was also the one who became flesh, as John 1.14 says, and dwelt among us. And this is who John wanted us to understand Jesus is. And the last verse of the prologue of John makes the same point. John 1.18 says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. Now, have you ever wondered about that statement that no one has ever seen God? Who did Adam walk in the garden with? And what about Abraham? Didn't Yahweh appear to him by the oaks of Mamre? Didn't Moses get a glimpse of God on Mount Sinai? What about Isaiah, who saw Yahweh high and lifted up, seated on his throne, where the train of his robe filled the temple? John answers this question for us. 
In John 12, 40 through 41, John quoted Isaiah 6, 9 through 10 to explain why, in spite of all the signs Jesus had done, the people could not believe him. The, ver the verses John quoted from were from Isaiah's beatific vision of the Lord seated on his throne. But in John 12, 41, speaking of Jesus, John says, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Now, if we go back to Isaiah 6 and ask Isaiah who he saw, he tells us exactly who it was. There in verse 5, he says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, Yahweh of hosts. But if we ask John who Isaiah saw, he tells us it was Jesus. And throughout John's gospel, Jesus also makes many claims that only God can make. He is the one who must be believed in to have eternal life. He is the light of the world. He has the power to forgive sins. He has the power to give both physical and spiritual sight to the blind. He is the resurrection and the life. And just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he wills. In John 20, 28, Thomas calls Jesus both my Lord and my God. Literally in the original language, he calls him the Lord of me and the God of me. And in John 9, 38, Jesus received worship from the blind man he healed. Add on top of that all the I am statements of Jesus, and doesn't it sound like John puts a lot of emphasis on the deity of Christ? Doesn't it sound like this doctrine is something that must be believed to have eternal life in his name? Now back in chapter 8, verse 58 wasn't the first I am statement Jesus had made to the Jews at the temple during the Feast of Booths. He had made two other I am statements in verses 24 and 28 but they hadn't caught on to what he was claiming. In verse 28, Jesus had said, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am. And in verses 23 and 24, he had even made the amazing claim, you are from below, I am from above. You are of this world, I am not of this world. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins. And this verse foreshadowed what took place in the verses we read at the beginning of the sermon. Between verse 30, when many believed in him, and verse 59, where the same people picked up stones to murder him. They were willing to accept him as a prophet. They liked the idea that he was the Messiah, who would become king and lead Israel to rule over all the nations. But when he confronted them with their sin. Their attitude toward him began to change. Beginning in the previous chapter and again in verses 37 and 40 that we read, Jesus kind of strangely and prophetically said they wanted to kill him before they even knew it themselves. But when Jesus confronted them with their sin and the truth of who he really was, the truth he said they could not bear to hear, they picked up stones to stone him. Perhaps when Jesus had told them, 
when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you will know that I am. They thought he was speaking about being exalted to his messianic throne, as they anticipated and assumed that would happen. Perhaps when he told them, unless you believe that I am, you will die in your sins, they thought he was talking about belief in him as the king who would lead Israel to rule the nations. But there was no way around what Jesus told them in verse 58. He prefaced his statement there, with the, as he often did, when he was about to say something important with the words, truly, truly, I say to you. And then he hit him with the bombshell. Before Abraham was, I am. The word was there referring to Abraham's, the translation of a word that means to become or to begin to be. So using the language that Yahweh used of himself in the Old Testament scriptures to distinguish himself as the only true God, Jesus claimed that before Abraham even began to exist almost 2,000 years earlier, he already existed. Misunderstanding what Jesus was claiming about himself was no longer possible. And so they picked up stones to try to murder him. And now I want to look at one more I am statement of Jesus to make a comparison as we prepare to apply what we've seen in God's word this morning to our lives. Now I had missed this I am statement until Jeremy pointed it out to me recently because our English translations don't translate it as I am. In John six nineteen through 21, it says, When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat, and they were frightened. But he said to them, and the words here are, Ego eimi, I am. But he said to them, I am. Do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Now, I don't know if Jesus' disciples comprehended the full meaning of Jesus' words here at the time. I kind of doubt they did. But the contrast between their belief in Jesus and the false belief of the Jews in chapter 8 provides us with a good example. Later on in chapter 6, after Jesus had preached hard truths and made big claims about himself that caused many of his disciples to turn back and no longer walk with him, as verse 66 says, Jesus asked the twelve if they also wanted to leave. Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know that you are the Holy One of God. So I want us to examine ourselves and ask ourselves this morning, how do we respond to Jesus? Are you like the disciples who are comforted by his words and gladly receive him for who he is and all that he says? Have you come to know that he has the words of eternal life and there is no substitute for him? Or are you more like the Jews we saw in John chapter 8 this morning? Do you have preconceived notions about who Jesus is that you're comfortable with? but don't match the full revelation he's given us in Scripture. The Jews Jesus spoke to at the Feast of Booths at the temple in Jerusalem were happy with a caricature of Jesus. 
They loved the idea of a miracle-working Messiah who favored them because of their ancestry as Israelites and would lead them to rule the nations. But they wouldn't accept a suffering and dying Messiah. And when confronted with the real Jesus, the Jesus who is the everlasting creator of the universe, who was their creator, and who would judge them for their sin, their love turned to hatred, and they lashed out and attempted to murder him. We see it's the hard truths that go against the natural desires of unregenerate hearts, whatever those desires may be, that expose false disciples of Christ. We see so many people in the world today who claim the name of Christ, but don't follow his commands. I don't know how many times I've seen people dismiss the commands of Scripture, saying things like, well, that's just the Old Testament, or that's just Paul, but Jesus never said that. No, Jesus said the Scripture cannot be broken. Jesus told people that the writings of Moses in Scripture from about 1,500 years before their time was God speaking to them. Besides, if we, as we've seen this morning, Jesus is God. He is Yahweh, along with the Father and the Spirit. And the commands of Scripture, all of Scripture, are as much His commands as theirs. Now, I don't think we have anyone in our church who's a so-called red-letter Christian who thinks we're only bound to obey the words written and read in the Bible because they're the only words that were spoken by Jesus. Now, we know all of Scripture is God-breathed. But so many people today who were once considered solid Christian teachers and pastors have denied certain truths of Scripture to accommodate and keep from offending the world. Others have downplayed the hard truths of Scripture that the current culture finds particularly offensive. And in a way, this is a blessing to Jesus' real sheep. The hard truths expose false disciples and false teachers. But I don't want us to leave here this morning simply thinking about others. We need to regularly examine ourselves. Do we love the real Jesus? Do you gladly submit to all he's commanded? Do you view everything he taught and everything he approved of, including all of Scripture, as good and right and beautiful? When Scripture exposes sin in your life, do you thank God for his correction and receive it? Or... Like the Jews in John chapter 8, do you find certain things are just too hard to accept? As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper this morning, let's ask ourselves those questions and examine our hearts to make sure we're in joyful submission to all our Savior and God requires of us. Let's pray. Lord, we come before you this morning praising you for who you are. You are the triune God who created heaven and earth, the one who leads us and sustains us, the one who directs all events to your intended end. We thank you for your revelation of yourself to us in your word. 
and the ability you've given us together in worship of you through the exposition of that revelation. We ask that you would bless the truths we've seen from your word this morning. And through the Holy Spirit that dwells in us would lead us in greater appreciation for Christ. We pray that you would grant us greater love for you and your word. And hearts of joyful and greater submission to all that you've commanded us. Lord, I pray that Christ has been glorified in the sermon this morning. And that he will be glorified in our lives as we leave here and go out into the world today. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen.